we are doing the right thing, aren't we, Hi? I mean, they had more than they could handle. Well, now, honey, we've been over this and over this, and there's what's right, and there's what's right, and never the twain shall meet. Hello, and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And, uh, well, okay then. This is uh, Raising Arizona. <laughs> this is Raising Arizona. Yes. Uh, like we were saying on the tail end of the last episode, this one, for some weird reason, has felt like it's been really a long time coming. <laughs> so it was awesome to finally get to cover it on the show. Uh, and we actually have quite a bit to get through. So let's just dive in. There's a lot to unwrap in Raising Arizona. There is. Yeah. So, okay. 1987. Uh, now, part of the reason why I've been really excited to talk about this one, and we discussed this with our special guest, Whit, is this is the first time that we've brought up the Cullen Brothers. It might be the only time. Uh, Probably, unless we do cover Blood Simple. Yeah, I mean, look, if everyone's looking forward to... Uh, 10 years from now when we finally start on a 90s movie, <laughs> whatever that will be. Probably not even a montage. Yeah, they really do. I mean, there's these, a lot more the, going this on. This is a great yeah. movie. Blood Simple is a great movie. But I guess, arguably, they hit their stride in the 90s. I think so. So, yeah. I, I would say this was their stride and they just matched it with all the others. Okay. So... <laughs> Um, and also what's really interesting about this film is, I mean, I could go on and on about this because I have strong feelings We're, about this well, concept of the auteur. This is the perfect platform to do that. <laughs> A podcast? Yeah, go on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it is, it's interesting on so many levels. So, I mean... I'll I'll go down the pipeline the way I usually do in terms of like we'll start with the writers who are the Cohen brothers, Ethan and Joel Cohen. And well, okay, let me just do a not so quick uh review of their credits. I mean, I think I have like over 20 for both of them in terms of their writing credits. And then this kind of ties into like what I was just mentioning about Autour because yeah, when you're the person who wrote the film that you directed, you arguably have your your vision is more thoroughly coming to light. They edited some of their stuff too. Yes, that's so. the other thing, and I thought that was really interesting. That br- really briefly came up with Wit when we were speaking with him, and that even more kind of solidifies uh, this idea of auteur theory in terms of the Coen Brothers because that's another hugely impactful. Um, person and process in terms of filmmaking, the editing of it. And now when you have these guys who wrote it, directed it, and edited it. What do well, you think the uh, the reason would have been for doing the editing under a different name? It's a great Because they did it under the name question. Roderick James. Yeah, I think Ethan Cohen likes to use, um, what is it, a pseudonym? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know... I would have to kind of look up what the reasoning was behind that. I mean, poor Ethan Cohen. I mean, he probably doesn't think he's poor Ethan Cohen, but he is is. uncredited for most of the directing credits. Mm. Um, And I noticed that uh, they swap. So like when you have directing credits on IMDb, Joel comes first, Ethan comes second, mostly uncredited. But then for the writing, Ethan comes first, Joel comes second. 
So it all balances out. Sure. I think that they probably could not care less about any of that. Um, but there's all these rules and regulations. I mean, with... the conversation definitely happened. I don't know how much they'd care about sure, it, but there the had to have been. The conversation happened, but it was probably forced by the fact that, like, the WGA, the yeah. DGA, they all have these rules about how things yeah. are credited. So, yeah. like, you kind of have to make decisions about it. In any case, let's go over some of the writing credits. And almost entirely, they are identical between the two brothers because they work together on virtually everything that is just beginning to change. Um, and I'll go over that in a second. But among Ethan's writing credits, now, when I say Ethan, just pretend I'm also saying Joel because it's almost the same. I will um, do so. We have Blood Simple, Crime Wave, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, The Hudsucker Proxy, Fargo, The Big Lebowski. Here is the one credit Ethan has that Joel does not, The Naked Man. Oh. Moving on to Oh Brother, Where Out Thou. It's kind of hard for me to say that all in Oh one. Brother, Where Out Thou. Oh, God. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not the only one. I know I usually am the one to trip over stuff. What the hell? But it's a, that's a doozy. Where Art Thou. Yeah, you have to really enunciate to get through it. It's the Oh Brother that trips you up. You think? Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. Oh, brother's the easiest part. Yeah, but it gets me, it sets me up to fail. Oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. Oh, no, it was okay. Yeah. All right. Moving on. The Man Who, which, by the way, great movie, probably my favorite soundtrack of all their movies. I think I'd have to do a dive, but I'm pretty sure that soundtrack. Oh, brother? At the very least was nominated, if not one. Um, in particular, maybe it won for song instead of score. Mm. I don't know. In any case, The Man Who Wasn't There intolerable cruelty the lady killers that's probably the one that i think maybe has the least uh acclaim i think that was killers a it was not a, do too great i saw that in the theater and it was it, it was okay it was sure an interesting movie for sure yeah there are a lot of irritable bowel syndrome jokes mm. they bounce back big time though with no country for old men yeah big time their most successful film to date. Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Gambit, Inside Lewin Davis, Unbroken, Bridge of Spies, Hell Caesar, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Okay. I would just be straight up repeating myself if I went through separately the writing credits for Joel. However, I just mentioned a second ago that... There's a little bit of branching out in terms of what they're doing professionally. Joel has taken on the tragedy of Macbeth on his own. Oh, okay. So he's not working with Ethan on that one. So he has he does have a writing credit. I mean, it's Macbeth, so we're talking Shakespeare here, but adapted. Are you um, telling me he wrote Macbeth? <laughs> However, what I did want to do is take a moment. Now, Joel and Ethan Cohen, they have multiple oscar noms and wins um for their work and it's in different categories so <laughs> i'm just going to go through it right now okay um okay so as far as joel goes i'll make a distinction if he shares the oscar credit with ethan otherwise it's just for him okay. so the first oscar nom came from fargo so mm. he gets an oscar nom for best director he uh, then also for the same film gets a best film editing nom 
with which he shares with Ethan. Mm-hmm. Sorry, this gets very complicated very name, quick. Roderick James. Uh, <laughs> well, it's credited as Ethan Cohen. Okay. But, um, All right. And then they win for best original screenplay. So he and Ethan win that for Fargo. Then, uh, unbelievably, nothing for the Big Lebowski, but they get another Oscar nom for best adapted screenplay for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Okay. Uh, so shares that one with Ethan. Then, like I was mentioning, moving on to No Country for Old Men, they get an Oscar nom for best film editing, both Joel and Ethan, and they get wins. So these two are shared between, or, or the Oscar wins are shared between Joel and Ethan yeah, yeah. for best adapted screenplay, best director. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, they're all shared. Best director and best picture. No Country for Old Men won Best Picture that year. Okay. Yeah. They won a lot. They won a lot. The two of them collectively won a ton of shit. A ton. No Country for Old Men. Yes, exactly. Um, And that is interesting because I'm wondering if something changed on... I mean, like, all these different guilds are just very particular. I get it because it all comes down to money. Um, And I'm wondering if the reason why Ethan and I'll get to it in a second, was uncredited on so many directing credits earlier in their careers because the DGA was like, nope, you can only have one person or as, like, credit. I don't know. Hmm. And then maybe at some point that changed. Uh, in any case, so they uh, then, after No Country for Old Men, get more Oscar noms for A Serious Man. So they get Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture. So they produced on it. Okay. And then they get Oscar noms for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture again for True Grit. We're not done yet. They get an Oscar nom for Best Original Screenplay for Bridge of Spies. And then most recently, they got an Oscar nom for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I would say uh, very quick from just reading through all these... Most of the recognition has come in the screenplay categories. Hmm. Uh, But yeah, we're talking to filmmakers who are highly respected and have been widely acknowledged for their talent. So, all right. As far as these directing credits, um, pretty much everything that I just talked about in terms of the writing credits, like they're like, you know, um, a Cameron Crowe where they pretty much just direct the stuff that they've written. Mm. So I'll just read off the directing credits for, quote, Joel Cohen, because he's the only one that's actually credited for all of these. But it's uh, pretty much all the same movies. So all right. <laughs> Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Cutsucker Proxy, Fargo, Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, No Country for Old Men, Bernard After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Inside Lewin Davis, Hail Caesar, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and then the upcoming The Tragedy at Macbeth, which again, he is not doing with Ethan. But that was exactly the same, wasn't it? It was. And so as far as Ethan is concerned, all of these uncredited credits, and we've kind of like gone through some of these before in the past with other filmmakers, he is uncredited for Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then the last of the uncredited credits, Intolerable Cruelty. 
then that shifts and he actually gets credits for Lady Killers on. So he was also uncredited as a director for Raising Arizona. Yes, I should have mentioned that. Yeah. So anything preceding the Lady Killers. Uncredited. Uncredited. Got it. Which makes me think this must have been, and I'm, I'm, this is kind of conjecture because I did not dive into this, but it makes me think there must have been some kind of change in the DGA or something like that in terms of the way that people are credited. In any case, so. <laughs> these guys are ridiculous. These guys are ridiculous. They really are. I mean, it's, it's quite astounding, the breadth of work, and we go into it with wit in terms of what, again, makes them so interesting. First of all, they're brothers. That's always something that's, like, really different. I mean, when you talk about auteur, you're usually talking about a single person. What is really cool about this film, I mean, we're talking 87. This is still very early in the careers of the Coen brothers. We talk about with Wit, and we'll get into it in a second, that we're very early into the careers of several what become very acclaimed actors in this film. But then also we have cinematography by Barry Sonnenfeld and who, as Witt mentions, like he come he becomes a director in his own right. Um and we actually have talked about him um specifically for when Harry met Sally. Because mm. he was DP on that. And so if you want to hear more about his involvement with that film. Uh, when Harry Met Sally was just from earlier in the season. So you can go ahead and check out that episode. Otherwise, let me uh, go over some of his credits with you. So he also was the DP on Blood Simple. And that is that is it for his right. collaboration. No, no, no. no. Okay. Just- <laughs> That's it for his collaboration with the Coen brothers. Ah, okay. Um. Yeah, he just goes on to do his own thing. So, Blood Simple, Compromising Positions, 3 O'Clock High. <laughs> okay. I thought I'd get a reaction out of you for that one, but I, anyway. My, uh, yeah, I, my reaction was just a, a, a facial expression of shock <laughs> that didn't translate well to the podcast. Throw Mama from the Train. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. 3 O'Clock High was fun, too. It was about, like, some kid about to get his ass yeah. kicked by I kind of want to do that one at some point. Yeah. He was the DP on Big, Tom Hanks. All right. So just mentioned when Harry met Sally. Oh, I lied. He also did Miller's Crossing. Mm, There you go. I lied. So that was his last collaboration. Misery. And then I did add a couple of his director credits because I just wanted to give people an idea of like who this guy was now that he's like pivoted into the directing world. So he directed The Addams Family. He directed Get Shorty, which I love. The 93 uh, Addams Family, the... Correct. Right, because I feel like there have been like sequels and then they moved on to like the animated versions of it. Yeah, they did. But yeah, the the one with uh, Raul Julia? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was really good. And Angelica Houston. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, what's her name for that matter? Christina Ricci. Yeah, and uh, Christopher Lloyd. Doc. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of. Lots I mean, of good it was good. It, it was, was good. real good. Yeah. And and Adam's Family Values. They were both really good movies. Yeah. And then, and they just stopped making them yeah. because there's only look there's only so many Adam's Family stories we can possibly get. <laughs> he directed uh, Men in Black. 
the sequel and Men in Black 3. I actually very clearly, I think, remember talking about that specific part when we went over when Harry met Sally. Because one of my pet peeves is when they change stylistically the way that the titles are named. (laughs) So it's Men in Black 2 as in like Roman numeral 2. But then for the third, it's just like the numeral 3. And that's so annoying to me. Yeah. Well, with the Men in Black movies... I kind of feel like why do they do that? No, no, no one's keeping track of that for the Men in Black movies. I am, and also he directed Wild Wild West. Oh. And there's more, there's more, but that's all we're he, we're not talking about his directing credits per se here. I just wanted to kind of give some context. Sure. So okay, so moving on to music. Uh, holy cow! Uh, the gentleman <laughs> who is the composer on this, Carter Burwell, and as you can tell, or as I'm about to go through, I mean, what did I get to? I think I ended up listing 25 <laughs> okay. of his composing credits. Yeah, it's he's one of those guys where it's like 25 is just a fraction of the work that he's done. And I, in part, listed so many because I wanted to just show that he has continued to work with the Coen brothers. He has a very long-lasting relationship with them. So, okay, you're going to hear some familiar movie titles <laughs> blood simple yeah yes there you go yes so starting off with blood simple miller's crossing barton fink but he ventures out he's not just exclusive to the coen brothers so he was the composer on the movie buffy the vampire slayer oh okay yeah i like that one he also did this boy's life he comes back to the coens for the hudsucker proxy fargo he composes on Conspiracy Theory, comes back for The Big Lebowski. He mm-hmm. does Gods and Monsters, Velvet Goldmine. Uh, a favorite film of mine being John Malkovich. Malkovich, Malkovich. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So good. So good. He does Three Kings, another great movie adaptation. Uh, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, The Kids Are All Right, True Grit. And then he finally gets a little bit of Oscar love. So It's about time. Yeah, surprisingly, it takes very long for that to happen. But he gets an Oscar nom for Best Original Score for Carol, movie Carol. He then composes on Hail Caesar. He gets another Oscar nom for Best Original Score on Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh, okay. And he also is the composer on this upcoming. I think. I mean, I think it's about to drop very, very soon. Uh, the tragedy of Macbeth. Was it a tragedy? It was. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah it was. Isn't it? Very definition yeah. of yeah. yeah. And he has been working on. So everything I've listed are films. I mean, he's very almost exclusive to cinema. But he is the composer on that TV show, the Apple Plus TV show, The Morning Show. Mm, okay. So yeah. Okay, uh, moving on to editing. Now, you brought this up a couple minutes ago. <laughs> it, it's them, right? Not on this film. Oh, really? But okay. But that's what's interesting is that they earlier in their career were using other editors and then I guess eventually just decided, you know what, we'll just do this too. <laughs> So, I mean, I get it. I guess if you have the means and 
they made, you know, definitely had made names for themselves. So they probably could say, no, we are going to do this. Like, you're not going to bring on a separate editor. We're going to do it for ourselves. And it just that in seems the end, like a lot of work. But oh, if you sure it is, I mean, and we talk about this a little bit with with wit, how meticulous they are. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that they would want to do that because mm-hmm. they're able to kind of see their vision from beginning to end. Yeah. I mean, there's that very common saying that's film is made three times. Yeah. Once when you write it, once when you shoot it, once when you edit it. Well, they're doing all three now. So they (laughs) have their stamp on every single part of the process. Pre-production, production, production, post. So for this film, though, they did have an editor, Michael R. Miller. And among some of his other credits, we have – and these are all film credits right down the line – a Marriage, Blood Rage, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. Oh, yeah. He does come back from Miller's Crossing. Okay. So he does that with them again. Medicine Man, Swing Kids with Honors, Boys on the Side, Anaconda. That movie was so bad, it was good. It it's was... just a stupid, fun film. John Voigt gets eaten whole by a giant yeah. anaconda. Yeah. If I see an anaconda on TV, <clears throat> I'll probably just... Keep it on. <laughs> and, I might. Yeah. Yeah. It's just fun. Stigmata, Ghost World, Strangers with Candy, Happy Thank You More, Please. I just love that title. I remember when that came out. I, I also have to mention um, after, Orga- after Anaconda, mm-hmm. Orgasmo, which was a movie written by uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the, yes. the South Park guys. Yes. It's so bad that it's just bad. It's, yeah. it's funny. It's got some funny stuff, but man... That movie was wild. I don't I don't know that I can recommend it, but I <laughs> I have to at least bring it up. Sure. You have to do your due diligence. Yeah. Uh, and a couple last credits, Punching Henry. And this one is just such an interesting title. Abundant Acreage Available. Hmm. AAA. Okay. Finally, we're moving on to the people who star in this film. The first of which is Nicolas Cage. Who plays, I mean, I don't know. If you want to call him H.I., we just have been calling him High. High McDonough in the film. And Herbert. Her, her, yes, officially Herbert. <laughs> officially Herbert. And we, not too long ago, no. talked about him. Moonstruck was not that long ago. Not no. that long ago. Just a little bit earlier in this same season of the podcast. So if you want to check that one out, we encourage you to do so. Uh, so... Because it wasn't really, like, that long ago that we covered him, I'll just kind of quickly swoop through his credits. So the first of which I have listed is Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Now, at the time, oh, I remember you weren't aware of this, and I was like, oh, that's so crazy. He was credited as Nicholas Coppola because he is of the Coppola family. That still blows my mind. Francis is his uncle. Yeah. He's part of that whole crew. Uh, we have Valley Girl. He's really good in that. And mm. at some point, we're, we're going to absolutely do Valley Girl. Yeah. That's a great movie. The Cotton Club. We'll also do Peggy Sue Got Married. I love that movie. And that was directed, actually, by Coppola. Never seen it. What? Wait, what? Never seen that movie. How do I not know that about you? <laughs> you've never seen Pe- Like, you've never seen any of it. I, I've probably seen parts of it, yeah. But I've never seen like, the Like, with thing. his kind of weird, affected voice in it? I don't... I don't oh know. wow <laughs> i'm gonna have to fast track that one for the podcast it's really interesting okay so like i said moonstruck honeymoon in vegas guarding tess uh you know this 
early part of his career, a lot of comedies, but he wins Best Oscar or Best Oscar, Best Actor Oscar. <laughs> best Oscar. That is kind of the best Oscar. <laughs> oh, what about Best Actress? Oh, uh, well, okay, Best, best Picture. Best, best Picture is probably the best, yeah. Best Screenwriter. No, I'm going to say Best Picture is the best Oscar. <laughs> For, well, I mean, we can go to the whole thing about the fact that <laughs> at this year's ceremony, they did leave Best Actor for the final reveal. Boy, did they fuck that up. Yeah, they really did. Man. It was it was really unfortunate for all, all parties involved. Everybody. Everybody. Uh, so he wins it for leaving Las Vegas. And then he has kind of like this like action little like action hero-ish phase oh, yeah. in his career for The Rock, Con Air, Face Off. He does City of Angels. He does a movie which I will never, ever, ever watch again <laughs> called 8mm. Yeah, it's it's going to be okay. It is so supremely depressing. I watched it like in the middle of the day. I And I think I purposely did that because I had a feeling it was going to be kind of a dark movie. Man, that one stayed with me. Did not like. Okay. Bringing Out the Dead, Gone in 60 Seconds, The Family Man. That's a good movie. Uh, he's in Adaptation and he gets an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Uh, he's great in it. I mean, he plays two characters in it, essentially. He is in National Treasure and its sequel, Book of Secrets. He's in The Weatherman, also a good movie. He's in a lot of The Blank Man, and I think I said that last time, too, because he's in The Family Man, The Weatherman, <laughs> The Wicker Man. He is in Ghost Rider and its sequel, Spirit of Vengeance. You really like him in Kick-Ass. Yeah, I thought he was pretty good in, in Kick-Ass. He was also good in uh, Snake Eyes. Oh, Under, okay. Underrated movie. Yeah, I think you maybe brought that up too. I probably say it every I, there's time. There's a lot of this like deja vu going on right now <laughs> with him. He voices in The Crudes and its sequel, A New Age. And I mean, he's been like on a tear for the last couple years in terms of the volume of work that he's been doing. He's been doing a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah a lot of stuff. <clears throat> So much so that I just started listing like how many movies he was doing in particular years because it was just a lot. So he did like five movies in 2016, six movies in 2017, another six movies in 2018. So I'm just kind of like moving through those years. Uh, he voices in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. So I wanted to. He's uh, the noir Spider-Man, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he does six more movies in 2019, and then he has gotten, I think, he, I'm even hearing, like, Oscar nom again for his performance in Pig. Hmm. Really not familiar with it, but maybe I need to be since, like, he's getting a lot of I've seen a for billboard it. for it, like, for your consideration kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am interested in some of his upcoming stuff. Like? Like the unbearable weight of massive talent. Oh, okay. I did see that one. That title is amazing. Yes, yes. I'm very curious to see how he does. I mean, this is still in pre-production. Things can change. But as of right now, he's attached to the film Renfield. And he would be playing Dracula. Yeah. So well, Look, we need more Dracula movies. So thank God. <laughs> I think it's been a couple years since we've gotten one. So woo. I'm very, very curious to see if that actually goes through. Okay, so now we are moving on to Holly Hunter, who plays Ed. Edwina. Correct. What kind of name is Ed for women? Well, it's Edwina, really. But I like that. I like that they did that with yeah. her character. So 
yeah, this is actually the first time. It is. That we've covered her in this uh, podcast. So, I mean, I do feel like there's maybe at least one other option coming up in the future because I love, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I love the movie Broadcast News. And that's an 80s movie, so I hope at some point we do that one because she's spectacular in it. Yeah, she's in Roe versus Wade, so maybe we can cover that before it's, uh... Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. Yeah. So, Holly Hunter. Uh, You want to know a little fun fact about Holly Hunter? Absolutely. Okay, so I'm getting a wee bit ahead of myself, but I'm excited to share this fun fact. Did you know that her and Frances McDormand were roommates? No. When they were at school at Yale. That's fun. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is. I mean, I you hear that every once in a while. Like, um, oh, man, who was Tommy Lee Jones roommates with? He was also roommates with somebody who I think it was a politician who went on to. Oh, I was going to say Jean-Claude Van Damme for no reason. <laughs> that no would be sensible great. Reason. Yeah. I would watch a documentary about that roommate situation. The couple. <laughs> yeah, the odd couple. I just imagine it would be it would be him coming in and then Jean-Claude Van Damme would have like two chairs. Being really, split. Yeah, he'd be doing that, that, <laughs> That's what he would come home to like every day. All right, so Holly Hunter, uh, among her acting credits, I mean, not, I mean, she is so well known as like a really acclaimed actress. She has, relatively speaking, a shorter resume like she's i think i want to say like 65 acting credits it's shorter than i thought it would be yeah exactly yeah i'm kind of surprised we have the burning she actually did get an oscar nomination for best actress for broadcast news because she's Mm, again phenomenal in it she's in the movie always she wins best actress for the piano which is quite the feat because she doesn't say a single word in the entire movie so yeah but she's really good in it um she gets another oscar now it was the same year so she was uh she doubled up on her nominations okay she wins for the piano she was also nominated best supporting actress for the firm so i think she's probably happy with the way that turned out if she could only win one she probably would have wanted it for the piano probably best best oscar yeah Best Oscar. (laughs) She's in Home for the Holidays, A Life Less Ordinary, Living Out Loud, Time Code. She's in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So she kind of does a little bit of a reteaming with the Coen brothers. She gets, as of right now, her last Oscar nom for Best Supporting Actress for the movie 13. So she's in that. Uh, if you're not familiar with her like actual on-screen acting work, maybe you know her from her animation work because she voices, uh, was it Plastigirl? Elastigirl. Elast- yeah. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> I, I'm about to have people come after me. Um, in The Incredibles and its sequel, just The Incredibles 2. So she does that and a great job. I love her in that. Um, she is in the TV series Saving Grace, but... Yeah, a lot of her earlier work is film-centric. It's only been kind of later in her career that she's pivoted away a little bit into TV. She was in Batman v. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Yeah, I didn't... I felt like they did her dirty in that. Like, she's not in it for a whole lot, and it, it doesn't end well for her. She plays a politician. She has, like, a very contentious relationship with, um... 
what's his face who was just Luther. so horribly miscast yeah um jesse eisenberg yes yeah they have like just several very weird interactions she's such a great actress and honestly i don't think he's a bad actor either but I did not it's, like it, it might be the worst casting that I've seen that I that I can like think of just off the top of my oh, head totally. in a movie. I can't think of anything worse than that. And yeah, it, and it, their yeah. scenes together make me really uncomfortable. I mean, maybe purposely so. I don't know. Uh there's just so much animosity between the two of them. In yeah. any case, yeah. she's in that. She is. She's in that. <laughs> she's really great in the big sick. Uh, I love that movie. Okay. It's such a good movie. Um, she's in that. And then, yeah, more recently, she's been doing TV. So she's been in the show Succession and Mr. Mayor. Got range. I mean, she can do the most dramedy of dramas and the most comedic of comedies. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> she does good stuff. Okay. So moving on to Trey Wilson, who is Nathan Arizona Sr., in this film and he's great in it i mean we unfortunately don't have a long list of credits for him because he unfortunately passed away pretty early in life 1989 um, yeah, yeah yeah just a couple of years after this i want to say it was maybe an aneurysm mm. um very unfortunately because he was a great great actor he adds so much to this film uh we talk about it with wit and the way that they use his character once the baby is taken uh, and how that plays with, like, the humor, but also kind of the humanity. He also, like we were talking about, uh, I mean, that final scene with him when he's reunited <laughs> with his kid and then just, like, five minutes later leaves him in the brain. I mean, I know at this point we're all we're all ready for the movie to end. Like, we're sure. just tying off loose ends, wrapping yeah. it up. But they climb a ladder... First of all, you're not getting within like, you know, half a mile of that house probably without having to get past like FBI and cops. They get up back into the bedroom. They just put the baby down in this empty crib. All the other babies are gone because Florence took them, mm -hmm. right? And yeah, he's like, well, you guys seem like you're okay. So he's just- a very trusting person. Leave the same way you came in. I'm going to leave my baby in here. I'm just going to walk walk away. I'm just going to go back downstairs. And I mean, it's <laughs> it was kind a, of insane. It's such an interesting scene because he realizes like these are the people who took my kid. And he is initially very understandably upset with them. Yeah. But once he realizes what they've been contending with and not being able to at this point have their own biological children, He's incredibly gracious and kind and compassionate towards them. Yeah. Which shows so much about this character in just a couple minutes of time. You know, like we joke about how when he's talking to the press, even though he's trying to get the word out about his kidnapped son, he's still like advertising for his furniture store. And yes, that's very funny, but it could maybe make him come across a little callous and uncaring. And that's completely flipped upside down at, in this final scene. Yeah. Like, I really was touched by how how kind he was to High and Ed about what they were struggling with, and I just thought that was a really nice moment. I so. mean, it's not a comedy if it ends with him, like, shooting them both for <laughs> kidnapping his son, it's which true. would have been a very viable Arizona outcome. 
Okay. Yes, you Not, would have the grounds to speak on that. So yeah. Yeah, could have yeah, happened. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, among some of his credits, we have uh, and it's all all film work. Three Warriors, Vampire Hookers. Wow. Yeah. Wow. A Soldier Story. Probably, I'm gonna say most people know him, if not from this film, Bull Durham. He plays the minor league manager. Yeah, that's what like I I most identify him with, aside from Raising Arizona. But I didn't realize that he played just a quote unquote character voice in I think an animated version of the Lord of the Rings back from I the did, 70s. I did see that. Yes, that. Thank you for bringing that up. So yes. And the other one that I want to mention is that he played uncredited, but he was father in the Pat Benatar Love Is a Battlefield yeah, music video. <laughs> So yeah, I did see I that too. Want to give him credit for those? Uh, th- thank you, thank you for doing so. <laughs> and just a couple more credits for him. We have Married to the Mob, Twins, Great Balls of Fire, and his last film credit was Welcome Home. Okay, moving on to another individual who has gone on to have—he's done quite a bit, quite a bit. Uh, we are, of course, talking about John Goodman, who plays Gale in this film. One of High's prison buddies. Yeah. Yeah. They show him at the beginning. Like, they're in the same support group. or like yes. Counseling sessions and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, again, I'm just like, I mean, just the good fortune that the Coen brothers had to bring together these actors who went on to have all these phenomenal careers. I mean, it's very similar to what we were talking about with Steve Buscemi in our previous episode with yeah. Parting Glances, where it's like... It's it's really not a slight to anybody else who didn't have careers that kind of took off the way that these people's careers took off. But you can see even so early in someone's career just the talent that's there. I guess it's really easy for me to say that because I can back it up with like now 30 plus years of all these other amazing credits. Yeah. But I do think you can see even in these early performances like what is to come. I think what like... Everyone, everyone in Raising Arizona, like every single performance Mm -hmm. is really good. Yeah. So it's not that necessarily any one particular performance stands out, but just as a whole, everyone is really good. So it's not surprising to see that like Nick Cage, John Goodman, Francis, like, of course, they've Mm -hmm. all had really good careers because they're all obviously really good at what they do. Really talented. Okay. So among his credits, I whittled it down to 20. Um... His early work, again, is, is like, pretty film... Well, pretty film-centric with, like, one exception. And it's, like, the big exception. We all know about it. And I'll get to it in a second. Moonlighting? <laughs> oh. We have... No. We have Revenge of the Nerds, The Big Easy, Punchline. He's also in Always with Holly Hunter. Yes, yeah. Arachnophobia. He comes back to the Coen Brothers' Barton Fink. Who would have thought we'd have a connection back to uh, our last... The last film we covered with arachnophobia. Yeah, that's a really tying good it all point. together. Yeah, yeah, wow, absolutely. He's in the Babe, Born Yesterday. He comes back for the Big Lebowski. I put this in just for you because I know you have very complicated feelings around it. Blues Brothers, two thousand. Yeah, I, I do not like that movie, but I like him mm-hmm. as as a blues brother. Mm-hmm. And some of the like musical performances were kind of fun, but overall 
it is it just it pales in comparison he did to everything the original. he could yeah with that movie but that was just going to be a really difficult sequel to live up to yeah uh he's also in oh brother we're out thou uh he has done great voice work he oh yeah he is uh what is it sully in monsters inc and then its sequel monster university he's also in the movie cars so more voice hmm. work and actually i didn't write it down but i just thought it was really funny because you know those like holiday specials um the ones that are more recent so not the classics like rudolph but he at one point does voice santa claus and um who else does he voice he does like another uh holiday character so he's done some of that work and i could totally see that i could see him having that type of voice oh did i ever tell you that i actually saying i met him is a very strong word but i saw him <laughs> did i did no. i ever tell you that no i don't think this so this is uh okay so what's funny about this apologies for the aside but this is literally my first day in los angeles I was doing a semester abroad for college. Okay. And uh, was staying at like a long term housing thing that like was very popular for people kind of doing what I was doing or okay. people who were in town for. In any case, it's called like Rosewood at the time. I don't think it's, it's not, I know for sure it's not in existence anymore. And so I park my rental car and I come to the front desk to check in. And he is in front of me talking to the person at the front desk. I don't know why he would have been staying there, but I literally had been in L.A. for, what, maybe an hour? And I was like, oh, my God, is this what it's like to be in L.A.? I'm just going to see celebrities everywhere. It is not it like is that. Not. <laughs> but that was, I don't think, let's see. I mean, I had been in L.A. to visit before. And I think, I don't know. I don't think he was like my first celebrity that I'd ever seen. But I remember thinking like, this is wild. We've like, had a few uh, celebrity sightings, but they're they're kind of rare. Like we've seen John Lithgow at a mall. We've seen Daddy McBride at a restaurant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But we always. Like, uh, when you live somewhere for a certain amount of time and it's a city that's known to house celebrities, you're going to see them. But we don't run in circles. No. That, yeah. No. You, you occasionally see them. And my advice is to just leave everyone alone. Don't engage with them. <laughs> Don't. Uh, yeah, they're just living their life. I saw Dennis Rodman at a bar in Huntington Beach, and he was my favorite player on the Pistons growing up until everything got like crazy and he joined the Bulls. But the last thought in my mind was to ever even consider right. approaching him. Right. Especially Dennis Rodman. Have I ever approached a celebrity? I don't think I have. Because, yeah, they don't. They don't want to be approached. <laughs> no, so. just, he just wanted to check in or do whatever mm -hmm, he was doing at that mm -hmm. place. Mr. Yeah. Goodman. Yeah. Mr. Goodman. Okay. So wrapping up his credits, he's in Argo. He's also in Inside Lewin Davis, Trumbo, 10 Cloverfield Lane. I really like him in Kong Skull Island. Yeah. 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 He's great in that. So up to this point, I'm listing all films. But of course, of course, of course, of course, probably most people were introduced to him as Dan Connor. In the TV show Roseanne. Yeah, he's the Connor that still gets to be on that show because... Well, she's the only Connor who's not on that show anymore. Uh, I mean, touche. everybody right. else is. Yeah. She's the only one. And so, yes, the show was rebooted, I think, for all of one season. 
it was still called Roseanne. Yeah. Now it's and the Connors, right? Now it's the Connors. Yeah. So and he's pulling double duty. Because... It's the most it's the most Roseanne thing. Like it fits yes. with that. Like, is this reality? Is just the... <laughs> anyways. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's amazing. But he's uh he's a very busy fellow because he's doing the Connors concurrently with the Righteous Gemstones, which well, that Love shouldn't that be show. too difficult because it appears that they only film for the Righteous Gemstones once every five years. Hello. We've been through a pandemic. Hey, I'm just saying. Wow. Come <laughs> down hard. Uh, give them a little grace <laughs> for pandemic things. But OK, so moving on to William Forsyth, who plays. Now, they're brothers, right? Dell and Evel. I thought they were brothers. I, they might be. I'm not sure. That's the take I got. But okay. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, William Forsyth. What a name. It's a great name. Yeah. It's like a very old Hollywood name. Like, that, that would be the name they'd give somebody whose real name is, like, Fred Banjo or something <laughs> like that. Apologies if there's somebody out there named Fred Banjo. Fred, we're but... sorry. <laughs> it's a very distinguished name. Okay. So, among his credits, we have Smokey Bites the Dust. Oh, is that one of the Smoking the Bandit movies? You tell me. You're I don't the one know. that knows those movies. I know that one, the first one. I feel like they're really treading on thin ice if it's not because everybody's going to do what you just did and be like, oh, is that part of the Smokey and the Bandit movies? Nah. So Once Upon a Time in America, he's in Dick Tracy. He was in the TV series version of The Untouchables. Mm. This movie just keeps coming up. He's in Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. What is there to do in Denver when you're <laughs> when you're alive? I don't know. So I don't know. For some reason, that credit keeps coming up these last couple episodes. He's also in The Rock. He's in oh that. okay, yeah. Uh, Deuce Bigelow, Mel Gigolo. You know, when I was writing that down, if you didn't know the word Gigolo, how would you pronounce that? Gigolo. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would totally use the hard G. Anyway, <laughs> The Devil's Rejects. He's in the 2007 Halloween. Oh, wait, is that the Rob Zombie one? I believe so. Okay. He's in, I put this one down for you, LA, I hate you. (laughs) Oh, man, I don't remember making a movie, but sure. (laughs) And then lately, uh, some TV series of his, Boardwalk Empire, The Man in the High Castle, and then just in addition to the shows where he's been a recurring character, just a lot of TV appearances. Yeah. So, okay, moving on to somebody who has so, so, I have like several O's following the S, so many TV appearances in addition to very iconic roles. Sam McMurray, he plays Glenn in Raising Arizona. Glenn, man, this guy. He's... He is like just a, he's such a recognizable face. He's really been in like everything, mostly TV, a lot of TV work. Um, But among some of his credits, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Okay. Very timely movie. Uh, Probably, I would say the show that first got him on the map, the Tracy Ullman show. Oh, man, that, that show got the Simpsons on the map. Correct. Yeah. Isn't that funny how those things work out? So Tracy Ullman show, the TV series Likely Suspects. He's also in the TV version of A League of Their Own. So he plays oh. the role that Tom Hanks originated, Jimmy Dugan. Okay. So he's the so the coach. Yes. Man- okay. Manager. He's in the film Adam's Family Values. Just brought that one up. 
Uh, he is a voice in the TV show Dinosaurs, which is just <laughs> so wacky that that show ever made it to. It has air. like a, a super depressing it really uh, does, finale yeah. where it's like kind of about extinction. Yes. Yes, it does. He uh, So many things about that show. I'm like, it's crazy that it, that ever happened. He did some other voice work on a, like a, an original radio drama for a little thing called Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. I think okay. that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Yes. I love him. It's a small role, but he's very, very good in Drop Dead Gorgeous, which hmm. whenever I have the chance to bring up this movie, I do because it is so good. It is a amazing dark comedy. Highly recommend it. He's in the film Sunshine State, and then some of his more recent-ish TV work, he was in The King of Queens, Christella. And then, like I said, he's just, I feel like he's just had a cameo in every single TV show that's been on the air over the last 35 years. He also played a homeless man in 2014's Scary Shit, a TV movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, moving on to a force of nature, Frances McDormand. Uh, she plays Dot in this film, and she's just such a fascinating figure to me. I mean, uh, I... Just watch any any YouTube Frances McDormand winning any kind of Academy Award, and you'll know exactly what we mean by how interesting she is. She, and what I love is she's just so unabashedly her, and she's, I feel, really coming to her own as an older actress and has really championed there being good juicy roles for older actresses. I mean, yeah, yeah. I know it sounds like such a cliche and it's 2021. We should be far past this, but it still is really, really challenging for a woman over 40 who wants to be an actress in Hollywood to get good roles and to not just be like, I mean, you can have good roles that are a mom or a wife or whatever, but like, Roles that stand outside of them being that figure, you yeah. know, and she's she's been amazing in her in all her work, but especially her more recent work. Um, she also just, you know, to, to put it out there, she also happens to be married to Joel Cohen. So that's his wife. Okay. Um, what? I did not know that. <laughs> oh, you didn't? No, I don't think you, I knew that. You didn't know that. I don't think I knew that. Oh, yeah. They're married. OK. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of those situations where I'm not I'm not really upset about any of that because she's so good. She's so good. I mean, yes, she has been in several Coen Brother movies and I'm about to bring. It's not like a Godfather three type of situation. Oh, poor Sophia Coppola. I didn't even say anyone's name. You maybe I maybe I meant Andy Garcia. Look, we brought this up before. I don't really have anything for Sophia. Like, I'm not like like paid to defend her, but that was just she was put in a tough spot. She was put in a really tough yeah. spot. She was never. She was not the original casting choice. It was Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder pulled out. Francis Coppola was kind of having a hard time. He decided that maybe this was just like the easiest way to go. She wasn't a trained actress. Like it. It just. Probably never should have gone down that way, but it's not her fault. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. So moving back to, to Frances McDormand. To Frances McDormand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so among some of her credits, she is in Blood Simple. Um, she, I didn't realize this, was on the TV series Hill Street Blues for a while. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So very early in her career, she gets an Oscar nom for Best Supporting Actress in Mississippi Burning. Hmm. She is in The Butcher's Wife, Shortcuts. She gets her first. So we got a couple more coming down the pipeline, but she gets her first Oscar win for Best Actress in Fargo. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. I remember that. She is in Primal Fear, Wonder Boys. She gets an Oscar nom for Best Supporting Actress in Almost Famous. Mm -hmm. I absolutely adore her in that role. She's a good mom. She is. So, and that's exactly what I mean. We're like, yes, she is a mother in this film, but she is so much more. Like, she's just so good in that movie. She's a fully realized, like, character in almost everything that she's in. Mm -hmm. I think maybe Raising Arizona is one of those exceptions because the point of that character was just to, like, add this like comedy more and, yeah comedy and, get, and conflict yeah and yeah. get yeah get ed's character all like riled, riled up, up about the dip tet yep uh she was on the tv series state of grace uh this is a little outside her norm i would say she's in something's gotta give like one of those like old maybe she did it be- again because it's like cast with more old like older actors yeah um she gets another oscar nom for best supporting actress in north country she's in burn after reading hell caesar and then yeah as far as like force of nature she gave like a compelling speech when she won again for best actress for three billboards yeah outside ebbing missouri and then not exactly back to back but pretty close to it kind of close yeah she just just won again for best actress for nomadland and she was a producer on it as well it won best picture so she also got an oscar for best picture and then currently she will be starring in the tragedy of macbeth wow also, this didn't win anything, and it was kind of not a great movie, but she was in a film with Liam Neeson called Dark Man, okay. where Liam Neeson, his character is this uh, scientist. He suffers this horrific injury, but he develops like a uh, kind of like a, a skin replacement, like a skin graft thing, so that he's able to assume the identity of all of the uh, criminals who, who hurt him. But I think once it's out in the sun, it melts after a few minutes. Anyways. Wow, that's... There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. There are several sequels <laughs> to Dark Man. He's wow, like this uh, okay. like Batman kind of crime-fighting yeah, type movie. I'm, I'm familiar with the character, but I really don't know anything about the movie. His superpower so. was that he couldn't feel pain. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay. Moving on to our last of the actors that we're covering for this film. We have Randall Tex Cobb. Who plays Leonard Smalls? I mean, it's really funny that he has like a full name, whereas Dot and Glenn do not, because I don't know, is he ever even referred to by his name in the movie? Leonard Smalls? Yeah. Yeah. He is? When he introduces himself to Nathan Sr. Oh. Because I feel he, like most people just know him as the like dystopian esque motorcycle rider guy. And then um Nathan Arizona Sr. also references his name when he's like, Are you with Smalls or oh okay fair point. So a couple times they, they bring him up, but I never even knew that. I never really clocked that. I was just knew him as like the crazy motorcycle guy, um, and he does have a lot of credits, but he wasn't originally an actor. He just kind of fell into it. Um, but among some of his credits, we have Uncommon Valor, The Golden Child. 
Oh yeah, I remember him in the Golden Child. He didn't. I don't even know if he had a single line. He was just oh, okay. there for like physical presence performance. Okay. Critical Condition, Police Academy Four, Citizens on Patrol, Fletch Lives. Oh. Ernest goes to jail. Uh, liar, liar. And then, I mean, he's still with us, but he hasn't acted in about twenty years. His last uh, credit was for a Walker, Texas Ranger. Which the, the TV Chuck series. Norris version one, correct? Not the Sam Winchester, correct? And that was about twenty years ago. Yeah, that that credit was put up. Okay, Derek. Yeah. Film synopsis. What do we got? What do we got for this? I mean, okay, here we go. When a childless couple of an ex-con and an ex-cop decide to help themselves to one of another family's quintuplets. Their lives become more complicated than they anticipated. Well, this sounds like a pretty hilarious comedy. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way. Put, yeah, I don't know how they're supposed to describe this movie in a way that that really gives it justice because it is a really kind of bizarre concept. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, this ex-con and his wife kidnap a kid. Hilarity ensues. The only thing I would say is, I mean, like, look, we all know who these characters are in the movie, but if you're reading off the synopsis, when a childless couple of an ex-con and ex-cop, like, I feel like the wording of that is a little weird. Yeah, it is. I would just say, like, an ex-con and ex-cop who fall in love decide to help them. Like, that is just is a little bit clearer. <laughs> um, you can and, always go down to the uh, to the story synopsis. Like, there's a fuller story sure, breakdown. But that- sure. Okay. Okay. So- <laughs> note let's get into it with wit okay then all right we are so very thrilled to have with us today wit spurgeon wit is an actor director producer among some of his tv credits are fresh off the boat cougar town liza on demand among some of his film credits are the horror films victor crowley and chastity bites he also happens to be the programming director and co-founder of the We Make Movies International Film Festival, which in addition to being a film festival, We Make Movies is a full-service production hub to help the DIY filmmaker. Wit? Welcome. Thank you for being here today. Who is this and why are you calling me? <laughs> this is going very well. This is, this is exactly how we want to <laughs> <laughs> no, right, I we're so stoked to have you <laughs> i'm i'm delighted to be here and and that was a hell of an intro uh, you fit all that in and in, in like less than like 30 seconds which is amazing. well good sir that's all on you i mean super impressive you are a busy busy man um and again that's why we're so thrilled to have you here so thank you for your time and this one we're really excited. As we mentioned at the very tail end of our last episode, we both loved this movie and it kind of was a long time coming for us to finally cover it. And so we were so excited that you suggested this one and we're going to dive in. So awesome. Wit, if you do have a first memory of this film or a first reaction, what was it for you? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Um, I loved this film immediately, and I saw this in uh, the movie theater. I had already seen their first film, Blood Simple, the Coen mm, Brothers, yep. and um, 
I wasn't ready for how doubly awesome and insanely funny this film was. Um, the, the films of the Coen brothers, and, and particularly this one, this was like right when I was getting out of college, Raising okay. Arizona. And I, w- I went to college to study acting and stuff. But I was already interested in film a little deeper than just the acting aspect. And this... This film uh, is one of the films that really made me look at filmmaking differently, like realizing that the main auteur of a film is not the actor. Mm. It's it's the director and also things like the writer and, and, and you, know, uh, you know, numerous uh, set decoration, you know, art direction, all that stuff. But this is one of those films that, that, uh, hit me over the head again with just like, wow, it's, it's really a larger vision mm-hmm. that's going on with films like this. Well, I'm curious. Cause you did mention that you had seen their earlier film, blood simple, which is a very different kind of film. Yes. So when you went into this, I mean, I'm assuming that you knew probably from marketing that it was a, supposed to be a comedy, but how did that strike you? Because in terms of talking about auteur, the the differences in genre between these two films. And did you find that, you know, because that's not usually the norm. Usually a director or writer, what have you, sticks to a certain genre. So how did that strike you? Um, Well, you know what's really interesting about this is that I I apparently went to see this based on previews that I saw in the theater and or on television. And the funny thing is, if you go back and look at those original TV ads on YouTube uh, and the original trailer, the the incredible soundtrack from the film, which Mm -hmm. was the made the composer Carter Burwell, who has millions of credits, is not used in those uh, trailers. It's this terrible kind of (laughs) dink-a-dink-a carnival music um, that apparently the trailer creators or the studios decided, you know, gave it a zany feel or something. Mm -hmm. But the trailers are literally made so much worse by that music. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, uh, and and yet... uh, Seeing the film was, uh, God, it was eye-opening. But in terms of like the different genres and stuff, I already knew enough to know the reason I went to that film was because it was directed by the Coens. And they'd only made one movie. But Blood Mm -hmm. Simple had kind of rocked my world so much in terms of their interesting use of visuals that I knew I had to go. And yeah, this is is one of my longtime favorites and probably – one of the most seminal films for me in terms of like influencing my sense of filmmaking and my sense of humor too. Mm. Yeah. The trailers are, excuse me. They're, they were interesting. I I watched the trailers before we rewatched the movie and I noticed the, the omission of the music that you hear throughout the movie, but just something about the trailers. I'm, I'm happy that people still went to go see the movie because the trailers were, I don't know that they really even come close to doing the movie justice. And when you're, if you look up the trailers on YouTube, some of the first comments you'll see are people saying, I saw this trailer and I watched the movie anyways. And the movie was really good. (laughs) I watched the movie anyways. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly it. I mean, it's still all the same footage and the same people and stuff, but it's a weird thing. I like to tell people that trailers are usually not a great, 
uh, barometer as to the yes. quality of a film. Like people will see a trailer and go, that looks terrible. And I'm like, yeah, you know, but you just don't know. Yeah. You're so right. I mean, that's why sometimes my, I mean, my heart doesn't break too much because if somebody has a feature film premiering theatrically, they're probably doing like, okay. But <laughs> but I do feel bad if the marketing campaign doesn't align with what you know, the film really is. And we've seen that with other films yeah. where oh, yeah. the marketing was just so off from what the film was. And that has to be heartbreaking for a filmmaker who's just, you know, poured probably a couple years into this film, oh, if yeah. not maybe decades, if they're trying to get it off the ground and to but, have it portrayed in such a way where you're like, well, that's not what this story is about at all. But for this movie, it's, it must have been interesting for the marketing team when they're, oh, you know, sure. okay, so, so what's it about? Okay. This, uh, this ex con gets married to the prison <laughs> person. They, yeah. they kidnap a kid. And, wait, <laughs> it, what? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Wait, you're saying this is a comedy? Uh, this exactly. sounds horrifying. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. I think I'm, I'm sure that they didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Because yeah. the other thing is that corporations don't tend to think very creatively. They tend to exactly. think they they tend to think in terms of bottom line. And it's like, I'm sure that when they were cutting together the trailer, and also most people need to know the trailers are not cut together by the directors of the films. Almost exactly. ever. That's good that you yeah. put that out there because there probably, you know, are some individuals who aren't aware of that, that like the marketing and the trailer work is completely separate from mm-hmm the way that the film is constructed. Like it's not the same individuals. Definitely yep. different groups. They they have I, I don't know what they did then, but I know that they have a pretty pretty reasonable degree of integration now where mm-hmm. those groups, while separate, do communicate so that they they want everyone to be happy sure. with what the result is. And yes. I like to think it's just because of this movie. <laughs> It, it could be. It could also be because of. Uh, I mean, you know, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. which uh, yeah. you know, which. But I mean, here's the interesting thing. Like, I watched that film uh, again recently, and I'm like, wow, this film is actually pretty amazing on a number of levels. It's very off-putting, but the thing <laughs> is, is that it was advertised as a sexy film, and it's not Ooh. a sexy film. That shit you know. ain't sexy. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I actually think the whole film is about uh, impotence, not just sexual impotence, but mm-hmm. about the lead character's impotence to make a difference. He can't save the other character. He can't, uh, you know. So again, I, you know, upon second viewing, I'm like, yeah, this film may be, may be really actually brilliant, but how do you market something like that? I mean, that's the problem, too. I get that the studio didn't get it, you know, mm-hmm. like. So, uh, well, how are we going to get people in the seats? Well, let's just keep showing the part where Nicole Kidman gets kind of naked, you know, and this hope is that so wild pushes it over the top. You, you just convinced me to rewatch Eyes Wide Shut <laughs> because the one thing that I really uh, leaned into is what you were just saying about, you know, his impotence at making a difference. I think that's a really fascinating part of the film that I wasn't really thinking about when I saw it. So total aside, but it's an interesting segue into the problem that, (laughs) that drives our characters in raising Arizona. That's right. And I'm sorry. By the way, by the way, this is, 
This is going to be, this is, I mean, just with me, you're going to find out you're always going off the beaten track. I had a college professor who used to call getting back on track, uh, back to Poughkeepsie. We got, we're heading to Poughkeepsie and we went on a sidetrack. Let's get back to Poughkeepsie. But that's like, I just like segues. Yeah. We, we always, I think at least a couple times per episode, there's a rabbit hole, an aside, a tangent. Like (laughs) there's, there's a reason our episodes traditionally far exceed the length of the movie we're covering. Exactly. Yes, and, and just so like, you know, I've got a lot to say about raising Arizona. So you know, a, when 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 I remember to just keep talking about that movie, we'll be fine. I think. Well, <laughs> one thing that I I really don't want to um, just brush over is the Coen Brothers and their unique style of filmmaking. And I know that, like, because one thing that we do talk about is how you know when you're thirty to forty years removed. Um, from a particular film and you've seen the body of work that a filmmaker has done since it's hard to kind of analyze them in the moment of when that original film came out, if that makes any sense at all. But I am honestly so fascinated by these two guys because like I said, usually a filmmaker sticks. I mean, you have like other outliers like Howard Hawks and that sort of thing. But usually a filmmaker sticks to the same genre and these guys are all over the place. And the thing is, is that they tend to do it really well when they do a a different kind of genre. So, I mean, are these filmmakers that, and then on top of it, you have these brothers, like, you know, usually when you talk about an auteur, it is singular and you have them together working in conjunction. So, how, what are just your feelings? I'm really curious, like how you feel about these two since this film and just the, the breadth of work that they've done over the last couple of decades. Um, I think these two are definitely cinephiles, and that is mm. why they're all over the map. I think mm-hmm. that maybe they're not just in love with one genre. I think when you look at their whole body of work, you're probably looking at an obsession with film noir. For Mm -hmm. one, I think that that carries through in most of their films uh, on some level, even Buster Scruggs and and even the broad comedies. uh, You know, there's there's a noirish element to most of those. Uh, But, yeah, I think that they just love all kinds of movies. And so they want to make all kinds of movies. Mm -hmm. No, that's actually a really good point. I mean, you. um And saying that kind of made me think a little bit about like Quentin Tarantino. I mean, I think he has more of a defined style that he sticks to. But I think the commonality is that now these are filmmakers who grew up just binging on film and just love movies and are extremely knowledgeable about the history of film. So that's a really that's a really interesting point. I mean, that's something that... um, you know, came up a lot when I was in school, this idea of like, you know, you have so many young, eager people who want to work in entertainment in some regard. And I just remember time and time again, my instructor saying, that's great that you want to do your own thing, but you really have to be knowledgeable about what came before you. And yes, I think that that is proven in the work that that the Coen brothers specifically are doing. So, well, okay, then. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Sydney- <laughs> Uh, Sid- Sydney Lumet. Sydney Lumet is uh, somebody who predates them. Who, uh, mm-hmm. as a director, done did a ton of genres throughout his career. 
So, you know, mm-hmm. go look that up. I, yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sidetrack too much on Lumet, but yeah, it's another director who's kind of all over the map in terms of, of uh, genres at least. And I no, would say, I would also say that I think the Coen brothers, yeah, the Coen brothers, uh, they're, they're kind of genre nonspecific, but I think that there's a lot of style choices that do remain through all their films, mm-hmm. I including totally things agree. like super active camera work. Uh, you know, none of their films is basically shot on sticks. There's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they've worked with, I think, only four cinematographers. But mm-hmm. uh, the Coen brothers always have very active camera stuff going on. Uh, lots of movement, lots of tracking shots, lots of pushes and, and, and whips and just all kinds of, uh, you know, they're, they're using everything they learned to tell Absolutely. a story. And that's actually a really perfect segue because, oh. yeah, because <laughs> in our most recent rewatch, of this movie, the one thing that I was really kind of coming back to time and time again is how kinetic this film is. Yep. In just so many ways, one of which is the cinematography, um, which the you dream just sequence where uh, where the bounty hunter. Well, I don't even know if you really know who he is yet. It's mm-hmm. just that figment or that that like dark figure in in high's hi's uh dream, mm-hmm. like flying yeah. up the up the ladder, basically like right up to uh, Mrs. Arizona, mm-hmm. when she realized yep. that one of the kids had been taken, uh, yep. there were a lot of moments like that. And I didn't have necessarily the same historical appreciation of the Coen brothers. Certainly the first time I saw the movie, but those are all things that I remember making it like a really unique experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, that shot, actually that shot that ends up in the bedroom with her, that is because, uh, Joel worked on Evil Dead as an assistant director with Sam Raimi. Oh, and those okay. those Raimi and those guys were kind of tied together for a couple of years under different things. Uh Joel also is it Joel no, Ethan wrote a film that Raimi directed called Crime Wave. Mm-hmm. It's this great terrible movie. Like it's got all these great elements and it's got Bruce Campbell, so I'll watch it no matter there what. But but the um the that shot in Raising Arizona is using the same technique that they used in Evil Dead called the shaky cam, where basically you're putting a camera on a board and running with it. And so uh, in the Evil Dead films, when the evil is coming towards the cabin, they use that shaky cam. They basically invented oh. that for that film. And they use the shaky cam here. Uh, and uh, apparently it was an homage to, to Evil Dead. That shot is using the exact same kind of lack of technology, right? But technique, which is awesome. Uh, I yeah, love it's that. Really, it's fun, super kinetic too. You know, and again, if you think about it, Raimi, another super kinetic director. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that and I mean, so with that, and then also in part these performances. Hmm. I. I mean, and I mean this in the very best way, like watching them, I was kind of getting exhausted because I was like, they are just (laughs) like, especially um, one particular, I mean, it's almost every scene, but like really one scene in particular is between Ed and High in the car and they're having this back and forth and just the, like the animation in their faces when they're talking to each other like at one point ed goes i know and i was just like like just even that little line and i was just so blown away because you know when i was kind of putting together research for the film i mean 
mean, I kind of had an idea because we're talking like 1987. Um, but they really, you know, hit it out of the park with like casting people who went on to become these, you know, amazing actors and actresses. And they're all fairly young in their careers here. Yes, like yes. Did, Holly Hunter, yes. Nicolas Cage, John Goodman, Francis yes. McDormand, mm-hmm. and all of them were in their first. There, there, It's it's one of their first ten films. In some cases, yep. one of their first three or four or five films, and probably Absolutely. for at least half of them, the first big film or second big film yeah. they were in. Yeah. So, how did you respond to these performances, just in general, but then also the direction? Of, you know, having everything be really, really high energy all the time. Yeah, it's, you know, it's big. Uh, everything in this movie is big. It's over the top. It's, uh, it's. Uh, I would I would call it you know in the in the in the tradition of broad comedy. You know, uh, mm-hmm. some people would say it's overacting. But here's what's what I think a lot of people don't understand about acting. The main thing about acting in anything. And and this falls on the director uh, as much as the actors, maybe more. Is it's not that you can't do a broad performance; it's that everybody has to be in the same world. Yeah, yeah. As an actor, so what's great about this film is that everybody has clearly understood what the world is. The fact that that performances have been dialed up to nine on a scale of 10 mm-hmm. and everybody's doing that. If you have just one of those actors trying to be super realistic, it would completely derail what's going on. But because they're all at nine as an audience, we, we accept it. Even that's a great point because even the prison counselors, mm-hmm. when they're talking about the word that was invented to uh, define someone like H.I., recidivism. And then yes. the other prison counselor, repeat <laughs> offender. Yeah. <laughs> like every every character is just so over the top. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah even the writing. And I mean, the whole thing, you know, at, at the beginning uh, when, when she's first taking pictures of him as a perp and stuff, and it's like, it's like, uh, don't forget the tattoo. You hear that off the side. <laughs> yeah. And then later on, it's a, don't forget the fingerprints, that. you know, and it's I it's mean, the repetitive think- thing. And then when she's about to get married, they say something like, "Don't forget the flowers." Like it's like that guy's still there <laughs> in the in the wedding, even <laughs> though he's a cop. Thing you know, it's yeah, it's great. But yeah, you know, as long as everybody's on the same page, uh, broad humor works r- really well if you know what you're doing. But again, without really good actors, uh, it, that can also be derailed. You know, and what's great about all those actors, think about those actors. They've also all gone on to be in some of the most realistic performances, you yeah. know, with the exception of maybe of maybe Cage, who's always a little bit out there, even, you know, even in low key films, but even in you, Snake Eyes. You make a no, you make a really excellent point to show like range of the characters, because the, the moment you said that. I thought of the two roles for which respectively Holly Hunter and Nick Cage won their Oscars, the piano and leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. Very. I mean, he doesn't say a single word in the piano. So talk about understated. Um, And so you're totally right. And I just want to, 
you know, reiterate how like excellent of an observation that was about, you know, as an actor and making sure everybody's on the same page to make it work. I mean, I think the clearest example of that is when uh, John Goodman and William Forsythe lose the baby for the first time <laughs> yes. and they're in the car and they're just <laughs> screaming at each other. And I mean, it's, it's an extended joke, um, but it works only because they match each other's energy. Right. And, and that's exactly, I, I mean, I could not agree more with that observation. It's, it's yeah. Excellent. Excellent point. And, and also because comedy about pain or fear or whatever also only works if the character is actually feeling the emotion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't just do that scream. Like they've got to be truly freaked out that they've lost the baby, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, it's it it's you know when I when I say uh, if you if you watch the old Stooge films or something, the, I think the greatest Stooge mm. is actually Shemp, Shemp, uh, believe it or <laughs> not, and and it's be, it's because when when he gets hit, you actually see him feeling the pain, and he will actually he'll do residual pain. Uh, which is just amazing to me. So, you know, he'll get hit in the head and he'll be like, ah! And then, you know, a, a couple seconds later, he might still be rubbing it and you'll hear him go like, oh, jeez, wow, now that really hurts. <laughs> <Whatever. Yeah. laughs> That's so funny. I mean, that, well, first of all, I think it's hilarious to say like your favorite issue. I know that people have really strong opinions about yeah. which I didn't, I didn't expect best. this uh, controversy to, to come up here. Have yeah. you never, like, I feel like people have really strong opinions. The Shem versus yeah. Curly is a whole yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know. And 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 they're they're both so different that it's like, why are we even it's just like saying, I like French fries. I like broccoli. Broccoli are better than exactly. French. It's like, no, they're completely different. You know, you want to have the I do feel <laughs> as, I feel as strongly about shrimp and curly as I do about broccoli and broccoli french fries. Versus french yeah. fries. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, you know, it's like it's like it, it, it's they're they're not a good basis for comparison is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. You know, it's like if you want to compare broccoli to cauliflower, I get it. You know, it's like but it's like yeah, then just say I like french fries. So you like curly. You know what I mean? Like or, you know, and that's fine. We don't have to have an argument about which one. <laughs> They're they're both they're both brilliant. I just I do think that Shemp is underappreciated though. I uh, agree with that because yeah, he, most yeah. people don't even I don't even know if you took a poll of ten people and said who are the Stooges like not oh. and so don't say the three Stooges just say who are the Stooges right. He Larry Moe and he Kurt, pro- yeah. yeah he probably wouldn't even pop up in like eight of ten. The tenth guy is going to say Larry Moe and Shemp and everyone's going to go. <gasps> Yeah, exactly. And then you'll have the one person who just ignores Curly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I wouldn't do that either. I'd go Larry Moe Curly and Shemp. Yeah. Don't forget Shemp. Shemp was great, man. Go back and watch Shemp. He'll he'll kill you every time. He's he was a classic. He was also the guy who appeared in more movies outside of the Stooge movies than any oh, of the other Stooges. Hmm. He actually was a, a legitimate character actor. And uh, is is in quite a few films. He's very good. That's so. I, but anyway, I I've taken things. us. Yes. Uh, no, not <laughs> I've taken us away from Poughkeepsie again. We're heading up to Syracuse, and uh, oh god. Well, I'm curious to know. Okay, so there's a couple like really, you know, seminal relationships uh, in this movie, and then obviously, yes. uh, chief among them is the one between Ed and High. And so, I was really curious. How invested 
were you, how, how invested were you, Anna, use your words, in their relationship? And was it believable to you that they loved each other, each other as much as they did? Uh, to answer the second question first, uh, yes. And again, because I just feel like this is the world that we've been asked to accept. Mm -hmm. And I, I think they do a really good job of setting up that world. By the way, they spend so much time setting up the world before we get to the actual plot plot oh, of yeah. this film that the credits, the opening credits are 13 minutes into the film. <laughs> Which the is opening very unusual yeah. for back then. Yeah. 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 And I mean, very unusual even now, now 13 minutes it's not you know two three minutes sure but like they tell a whole lot of story before they even actually do the official opening of the film it's they like do. you know a prologue and you get that uh you get the music that you hear throughout the movie but you get kind of yep. like the the you know low-key version of it until the credits finally begin and then you get that glorious yodeling it is glorious yep. yeah yep but because they set the tone, I, I think what's great about those two characters is that you can see that they're both uh, like profoundly messed up, yeah. but that they are at heart decent human beings. You know, you've got a mm -hmm. you've got a guy who robs convenience stores, but he he refuses to put bullets in the gun because he doesn't want anybody to get hurt. You know, he's just kind of a mm -hmm. lunkhead. So, you know, they, they've done a great job of setting up this world. And what I think is great about the two characters is that is that the two leads are both clearly damaged individuals. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got a career criminal and and uh, a, a, a person who works for the cops, who, who is a cop who seems kind of emotionally detached in some ways when you see her at first. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're both damaged, but they're also you can tell they have hearts of gold. You know, uh, just immediately that they are really doing these dumb things they're doing out of love. They kidnap a baby, but it's because they want something to love. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so even even like, you know, like uh, like High, the, the, the main male character, the Nicolas Cage character. I mean, he's he's a criminal, but he doesn't put bullets in his gun because he doesn't mm -hmm. want anybody to be hurt. So I do buy the relationship. I think if if you come into a movie like this looking for a completely realistic relationship you're not going to find it but in a zany over-the-top world which they've created here these two characters are kind of destined for each other so yeah, yeah. i totally buy the relationship i mean one aspect of it that you brought up that i also wanted to kind of dive into a little bit i mean that was a very i i feel real challenge for the coen brothers to make these two characters sympathetic enough that you're okay with them kidnapping a baby. <laughs> right. I think that's a that's a really tough order to fill, if that's a saying. <laughs> right. But you know what I'm saying? Like that, because most people are like, oh my God, they're they're stealing someone's child. I mean, even if it happens to be part of a quintuplet where, you know, and they've made a point of saying, oh, we have more than we can handle, you're stealing someone's child. And I think that that was really amazing because by the time that occurs, I accept it. I mean, I still know on That's some right. level that, you know, and, and I do appreciate the fact that the Coen brothers, I don't think you see much of Mrs. Arizona once the baby has been taken, but I do appreciate yeah. that the Coen brothers do go back 
to Nathan Arizona Sr. several times so yes. that you're not completely devoid of the fact that this family is in pain and mourning the loss of a child. As comedic as it is, that, you know. Right. <laughs> I uh, mean, yeah, they does, don't they explain that, that she went to her mom's with the remaining kids? Oh, that's right. That's right. But it is interesting yes. that they just completely chop her out of the movie. Yeah. From after after the scream. Yeah, well, and that could also that could also be because uh, they didn't want to have to deal with that many babies anymore. Because once you get back to the yeah. house, uh, you know, maybe the yeah. audience is going to be like, "Oh, let's see the other four babies again." And I, I just think about, good God, it must have taken them five <laughs> weeks mm-hmm. just to do the bedroom baby footage with Nicolas Cage and those five babies. So be- I did read that there were fifteen babies total yep. used, yeah. and one of them was fired because. <laughs> It, it, it started walking. Walk. It started yeah. walking. And the mother wanted to, to stay in the film, so she tried everything to keep the baby from walking, yeah. including putting its shoes on backwards. It's so messed up. Putting I the know. baby so on backwards. For a child's <laughs> development. Like, I mean, that is like, I mean, it's the funniest story, but you're like, holy hell. Like, this is your child learning to do a seminal activity, like oh. learning to walk Look, and you're that, trying to deter your child from doing that. That kid is <laughs> that kid is all grown up now. And if you want to join us for a follow-up episode yeah, and talk about I your- I would love to know how well you're walking today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that is just so well. And I want to yeah. totally talk about that scene because- uh, it is just so. It, I mean, everything about that comedy. I I just love every second of that scene. I wanted to say really quickly. What, what do you think? Do you think that maybe part of the reason why Mrs. Arizona was all of a sudden gone? And you're right. I think both of you are right in terms of saying like it just made it easier on production to not have the other four babies around all the time. But um, yeah. to show a mother mourning would maybe lessen the sympathy for Ed and High, if we were seeing shots of the mom? Do, do you think there's anything to that? Or do you think it's I think just that's me? An inc- no, I think that's an incredibly astute observation. I think that once we bring the mother back in, if she's if she's mourning, even if she's mourning in an over-the-top comedic manner, mm-hmm. um, it, it, uh, it, it villainizes our two yeah. leads even more. Um, yeah. You know, th- they, they do pay... Uh, uh, verbal tribute to that you know like like she worries about it mm-hmm. holly hunter's character you know what i mean mm-hmm. ed ed worries about it she worries about it out loud and they talk about it several times throughout the thing but yeah i think if you go back to that i think that's a very astute observation if you go back to her and actually show her suffering then uh it it it, it takes the air out of the comedy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's easier to laugh at the father right because the father throughout, while he's worried about the kids, he continually reminds people that the business is still open and right. please come to my furniture <laughs> store. You know, <laughs> my favorite, and I know we're skipping all over the place, but I was laughing so hard at the end when, okay, so spoiler alert, they bring back the baby. But um, for, I mean, anybody who hasn't seen this movie at this point, and when he comes into the room, you know, initially, of course, he's overjoyed. <laughs> that that his baby's back but like he spends all of what five minutes in the room with the baby that's been kidnapped for i don't know how long and then he like he leaves. leaves them back in the <laughs> yeah. room yeah. <laughs> with the baby. Yeah. <laughs> i mean it's hilarious to me and 
Yeah. Uh, what, what's just, his line? Yeah. And you guys, you can go out the way you came in, yeah. which is through the yeah. window down the ladder. You know what I mean? But yeah, he's going to leave the baby with them still. And also, wouldn't he just want to hold that baby for right? 24 hours? But Thank you. Hey, man, that, it's broad comedy. You know, it's we're, broad we're, comedy. <laughs> and when he was like talking about the reward, he's like, or we can do it with a credit line through the store. Yeah. That's what I would prefer. I mean, yes, like, for tax purposes. Yeah, for tax purposes. <laughs> so you're totally right. I mean, even though they do cut back to Arizona Senior several times throughout the course of the film after the baby's been taken, there is a, a certain humor to it because of that, you know, those lines he throws in about the store that lightens everything and keeps, you know, your sympathy for Ed and High intact. So at least yes. that's the way I feel about it. But yeah. um, well, I mean, so, even when the FBI is talking to him yes. and taking his fingerprints, they make a joke out of that because he gets his fingerprints on like the, what is it? The cashmere sweater or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so they turn all of these potentially super serious uh, and possibly sad moments into comedy as well. Cause you have to, because otherwise the film isn't what it is anymore. Mm-hmm. It becomes something else. Well, I'd put a pin in it, but I'm taking it out. So the scene with high and all the babies. <laughs> yes. My favorite scene, hands down, of any in the entire film. And I'm just curious, like, for you, again, I think one thing that this film leads into is kind of the long joke. Because that scene does go on for quite a while. It's it's so good for so many reasons, but just the the anxiety and terror on on Cage's part was just so palpable. I mean, yes. it was there. There were moments that were, and the music reflected that. Mm-hmm. that there were like Jaws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So I'm curious, how did you did you feel like the scene had to be as long as it was to be effective? What, like, what purpose do you think it was trying to have? In that, you know, he comes in there fully intent to take one of those kids. After that scene, he leaves with no kid. So initially, like she, right. Ed is the one who's like, you need to go back and get a baby. So don't go back without a baby. Yeah. Don't go back without a baby. And yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, what did that scene do for you? And what do you think they were trying to say outside of just like it being funny? Well, no, I, I think that it's what's great about this is that he's been he's been sent to um, to take one baby mm-hmm. and he's never had a child in his life. So when he if if he went there and there was only one baby to take, it would have been a simple thing. But what ends up happening is not just the the whole drama for him, the comedy resulting of him trying to keep the kids quiet or whatever, but it's now having to choose a baby of one of the five babies and you know, suddenly his mind is racing. But on top of that, he's he's also he's not just uh subjected to the stress of dealing with one child, he's su- subjected to the stress of dealing with five, mm-hmm. you know, as they come out of the crib and then one of them disappears and one wanders into the hallway. So it's like he's getting a crash course in child rearing and all the horrors <laughs> yes. that, that parents go through. Like, you know, and these babies aren't even walking yet, but they are crawling. Yep. And they can crawl and fall down the stairs, which is what the one baby almost does. Mm-hmm. And then the other one gets lost and he has to find it in the closet. And so, yes, I think it's it's completely intentional that it's as long as it is. And I think it's necessary, too, because I I think it it, it well, it just provides a ton of great humor. But it mm-hmm. also it, it, it shows us where 
where he starts going off the rails. High starts mm-hmm. going off the rails. That's, That's where he he starts experiencing that insane tension that eventually leads to his further recidivism mm-hmm. later in the film. That's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. And never even kind of put it back that far. Yeah. It was also a good example of how his hair would reflect his <laughs> level of anxiety. Yes. His hair in that scene, real crazy. <laughs> Yeah, his Woody Woodpecker hair, which they use yeah. to great comedic effect. The higher, the more stress he's under, the more messed up his hair gets. You know who we haven't talked about at all yet? Another. Oh, you're talking about Sam McMurray, uh, Glenn and Dot. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. because yeah. it's interesting because this movie could almost entirely exist without them. Mm-hmm. I was that was actually yes. something I was really curious about. Like, with how do you feel about? their inclusion in the film and were they effective? Did they bring something to it that wouldn't be in the film without their presence? I think that they are there and and their children in particular Mm -hmm. to, to build a much deeper and greater anxiety for high. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, Mm -hmm. the first time we see the kids, they're beating the shit out of his car with bats and pieces of wood, (laughs) you know, boys. And you know, there are all these great lines, you know, uh, what is it? When dot says, Raleigh, you take that diaper off your head and you put it back on your sister. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you know, and, and, and I think that that's the purpose of that scene is that, is that, uh, um, uh, Ed and high have an idea of how perfect their life is going to be with children. And we don't see a lot of Ed in this scene. We mostly see High, mm-hmm. and it's it's literally about. I mean, you know, also even within the house, uh, you know, uh, we're we're focusing on High and High watching these kids run around and the kid spraying him with his squirt gun, saying, "You peed yourself, you peed yourself," and you know, just it's like the nightmare version of parenthood, mm-hmm. and it's not what High thought he was getting into so that's what i think that the the purpose of that scene and thank god again you've got two amazing actors doing that scene which makes it so enjoyable so we're willing to go on that slight detour Mm -hmm. but i do think it serves a purpose i do think it serves a purpose in the film okay the um the a couple interesting things from from their interaction with dot and glenn the the kid who just writes fart (laughs) <laughs> on the wall and then yeah. and then Leonard Smalls coming in just staring at it I'm not really sure like whenever I watch yes. it I'm like I wonder what he's thinking is I, I don't I don't know and then Dot does play a more important role they probably could have worked around it some other way but she gets Ed so anxious about needing to get the the shots mm-hmm. and the pediatrician that that's yes. why Ed is gone that mm-hmm. next day when yep. Uh, John Goodman and William Sor- yeah. Forsyth take the kid to do the, the bank robbery. Yeah. So she, they yep. needed to get her out of the house somehow. And I guess that's how they did it was medical anxiety. Yep. You got it. Got to get their dip tet. Got to yeah. get that yeah. dip tet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I love the point that you raised with because I, I do agree with you. I think that that definitely the inclusion of those characters and that, you know, scene with them helps to, move high further away from perhaps wanting this kind of life or thinking that this is the kind of life for him. And what I see is like kind of this divergence because he's getting more stressed in a, in a particular way. And, you know, dot talking to Ed about all the things that she needs to do is likewise getting Ed stressed, but Ed's stress is 
okay, I need to like step up and do more. We we need to do more. Like when she keeps like saying, hi, did we do that yet, baby? Did we do that yet? Yeah. yeah. No, we're going to do that. We got to do that. And you see him just retreating emotionally. Yeah. You can almost, you, uh, it's like uh, his hair, oh. you, it almost yes. starts to visually stand up. Like, yes. holy shit. You know, like he's. Yeah. Uh, no, I, again, uh, I think the Coens, even it, this early in their career, it's only their second film. Mm-hmm. And I think that we see even from the very beginning, blood simple, that they're super deliberate filmmakers. Like mm-hmm. these are, these are guys who storyboard the shit out of something and everything serves a purpose in a way. Like, you know, uh, we may not know what it is initially, but we'll figure it out at the end. They do a lot of visual callbacks, like mm-hmm. the fart joke, you know, yes. the kids drawing fart there. And then later on, Leonard Smalls is like, what the hell is this? You know? yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're super um, meticulous. And uh, and that's just part of it. You know, I think that those two characters definitely serve a purpose. And I think it's just to to uh, kind of send send high over the edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the, I guess, invitation that Glenn offers. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. You know, <laughs> the, the announcement that, that he and dot are swingers yeah. that, I mean, that ultimately results in HI losing his job mm-hmm. and that anxiety plus losing his job pushes us into what I'm going to say is maybe one of the greatest chase scenes oh, yeah. in, in all of cinematic history. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. Son of a bitch. Absolutely. <laughs> and another one of the super long sequences in the movie, just like yeah. the babies, you know, you're like, wow, this sequence is really long, but it's all really effective and it all serves a purpose. And that chase sequence is one of the longest chase sequences ever and easily one of the funniest. And again, super technically accomplished. They use the shaky cam a lot on that. Again, the, the Sam Raimi, mm-hmm. you know, uh, evil dead cam uh, shots on that. And the fact that that I love the way that that chase snowballs. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really kind of brilliant because at first it's just him running away and he jumps over a fence. He's running from the cops. Well, then the dog. And now he's running from the cops and the dog. And then more dogs join in. And now he's running from the cops and the store owner who's yes. chasing after him now and a bunch of dogs. And then you finally get back into the store again. And now it's it's uh, it's women at night doing late night shopping in their pajamas and curlers and the rollers and they become part of the chase and by the way the background music in the grocery store is a muzak version of that wonderful theme that's amazing by carter burwell so but again think about all the layers of filmmaking going on there i mean it's and for a second film that's crazy Mm -hmm. they're so good I completely, when you mentioned the word meticulous, uh, that really hit with me. And, you know, some things I, well, I say this a lot on the podcast that like things that I read, sometimes I take with a grain of salt because you don't know what it's been filtered through. But I did read that Nick Cage was attempting to be like, hey, we should do this or we should do that. Or he was just, you know, um, going rogue on his lines. Right. And they had to kind of rein him in and not to say that it was a hostile work environment, but they just both mutually agreed that they just have very different ways of making movies. Um, So I thought that that was really interesting because I think that also proves out your point where 
they're like, no, 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 we're gonna we're gonna yeah. stick to what's because in the this script, is, or this we're gonna one little bit right here is very important for exactly. something much further down the line that you may not be thinking about just exactly. yet. Exactly. Yep. That's yep. that's exactly right. And they're not averse to improvisation. This is really interesting because I know that whole story about him and stuff. But they've said that they'd prefer to have a, an actor who's not rigid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and who 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 does that? But that they you know that basically that actor also has to understand that they've got a pretty specific idea of what the film's going to be. And I, I didn't tell you guys this cause I'm just background, but I, a few years ago, I generally don't do background work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, the, uh, um, hail Caesar oh. by the Coen brothers shot here. And, uh, there was a call out for background actors and I sent in my picture and I got cast as a background actor. And I, I had to tell my agent, look, I know you don't want me doing background work, but uh, it's a Coen Brothers Coen movie. Brothers and I just, movie. I want to be in a, I want to be in a Coen Brothers movie, you know? And, you know, you'll, you'll never spot me. I'm, I'm way in the background walking behind the set. I mean, I'm on screen for about 30 seconds, but I'm, you know, I'm just a guy in the background, but it was great. Cause I got to spend two days on set there. And what's really interesting about them is they do about seven to nine takes for each scene and they make minor adjustments each time. So they, they say things like, uh, could you say your lines? You know, I mean, I was 10 feet away from them and the lead actors. So it'd be mm-hmm. things like this time, uh, let's walk a little faster and let's talk a little faster. And that's the only note for that next take. Mm-hmm. And then the next take, they might give notes on individual line readings or whatever. Try it a little, you know, try this a little more seriously or a little more angry about this. Uh, Try this a little less seriously or whatever. But they do those seven or eight takes. And usually their last take, they will, uh, the one that I was, uh, the one that I saw a lot of the stuff of was they told the actress, oh, remember that line you improvised in one of the readings we did? Throw it in here. Hmm, we might okay. we might not use it, but it's funny, and we might use it. Okay. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, but they're very meticulous, and I mean, even in the way they direct, they like I said, they they make minor adjustments each time so that they can get exactly what they're looking for. And I'm I'm sure they're keeping notes and going, we still haven't gotten this in the right. previous four takes that we need. So yeah, super interesting. But yeah, I, I can see yeah. I just love when we have people on where you can just tell how much they love yeah, that was a particular incredible. film. And then also just everything that surrounds that film in terms of like filmmakers and impact throughout the years. I mean, that's what's made this conversation with you so fun. And I just thank you so much, Wit, for for that. Like we just had such a lovely, lovely time talking to you about this movie. Um, yeah, it's been great. The feeling is mutual. I'd be happy to come back if you can put up with the fact that what is probably usually a 50-minute interview usually turns into an hour and 20-minute interview with me. So. <laughs> That's how we roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is our jam. That is our jam. And before we let you go, I just wanted to see, would you like to share with our listeners what you've been up to, what projects you might have going on? Oh well, you know, I'm always uh I'm always the program director for the We Make Movies International Film Festival. If you've made a short film in particular or even a feature 
you know, and and uh, you did it mostly on your own. We celebrate the DIY aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Please go on Film Freeway. Look us up. We make movies International Film Festival. We'll be in October of 2022 this year, and awesome. we'd love to get submissions from interested people. Um, uh, also let's see what else, you know, I continue to work with, we make movies. We, uh, we are a, uh, filmmaking collective and we are also a kind of one-stop production house. Uh, you can a la carte some of the, some of the services that you need, like color correction, editing. Uh, we can even help you cast, do all that stuff. So I'm always busy with that in terms of projects. Uh, I will be shooting another short film. I've done just a little over half a dozen, but I'll be directing again early next year uh, on a short film that I'm really excited about. Um, And uh, also I appear in and help produce a high end short film, which it looks has a good chance of getting into some of the major festivals, which will be coming out next year as well. And that is no small feat. That one is called The Lizard Laughed. Okay. So, Oh, and it, uh, oh, you know what? There's another thing that I can't talk about. NDA. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Leave us uh, in suspense. For those, which, yeah. Yes, for those, who don't, for those who don't know, the NDA is the non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. Uh, meaning, you know, I did something. I, I can tell you it's for network television, but I'm not allowed to talk about it until Understood. it comes out. Well, so. we, we know when we can plan our, our next uh, exactly, time to talk. Exactly. We'll plan it around your next visit uh, when you are when you are able to talk about it. And Excellent. just wanted to say that, yes, I highly encourage everyone to go check out We Make Movies. You can, you know, see what this amazing organization is all about through social. But also you guys have a newsletter, which is highly yep. informative. We make movies.org sign up for a free membership, the free membership. And, uh, and, and, you know, if you stick around with the free membership for a while, you'll figure out if you want to do a paid membership later on, we just like you to come in and join us and see what we do. Maybe join some of our workshops online and stuff like that. Yeah. You guys do great, great stuff for filmmakers. So please do check it out. And again, wit, thank you so much for your time today. We just absolutely loved having you on the show. Y'all are fantastic. I hope you invite me back. Absolutely. Oh, boy. That was just so much fun. Wit could not have been a more perfect guest for this movie. And thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. I mean, he literally was standing 10 feet from the people that, that made this movie and so many others that we talked about. Yep, absolutely. Derek? Oh, yeah. Would you watch this film again? This is one of those movies where I there's no limit or cap to the number of times that I would watch and enjoy this movie. It's one of my favorite comedies. I remember it growing up. I don't remember seeing it in a theater, but I remember watching it every time it was on TV. Mm-hmm. I would just put it on and watch it. Yeah, I really love this movie. I mean, I would definitely... The short answer is yes, I would watch it again. I was introduced to it a little bit later in life. Mm. And so I don't really have the same kind of fond recollection. I like the movie a lot, a lot, a lot. I think part Um, of it for me is that it was filmed like around Camelback Mountain. It is like so Arizona centric. That's where I grew up. Not a lot of movies, I think, would, uh, you know, it's it's kind of unique in that in that Mm -hmm. sense. So I get a kick out of it just. You know, I, I know at the time it came out, the I think governor maybe or 
Mayor Fee. I, some people in Arizona were kind of pissed. Like, mm. this is not what we are like in Arizona. Oh. And I watched it and just laughed because I'm like, some of you are. <laughs> so, yeah, I really like it. Okay. Awesome. Call to action. How many babies have you kidnapped? <laughs> I know, exactly. Like, I mean, <laughs> this is kind of a hard one. Um, I mean, I think I would probably lean into more just like the body of work that the Cohen brothers have. Okay. I feel like. Okay, well, that makes sense too. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is. I don't know. Would you say that? Like, I'm kind of curious, like. Do you think that this is still today, given that this is like what their second feature, their mo- most popular film, the film that most people identify the Coen brothers with? Oh, I don't think it is at all. Oh, what do you think it is? Um, man, I mean, not not this. I mean, they're... The Big Lebowski? Possibly, possibly. Okay. But part of it, part of the difficulty in answering that is that there's such this like eclectic mix of different genres right. that, they, that they cover. Right. So... You might really love one of their movies and not even be aware necessarily. Like I, I love this movie, Burn After Reading. I've mm-hmm. seen part of it, but it's not. It doesn't like sure. resonate with me the same way that some of these other movies do. So I, I don't know. Hudsucker Proxy, great movie. And they actually wanted to make that when they made Raising Arizona, but they didn't have the money, mm-hmm. so they made Raising Arizona first. And there's actually a reference to yeah. the Hudsucker Proxy in Raising Arizona, where uh, HI works. It's like a reverse uh, Easter egg because Tucker Proxy hadn't come along yet. They knew they were going to make it, though. So they just wanted to do Raising Arizona, I guess, to... What, raise money, maybe? Raising... It should be called Raising Funds for Tucker Proxy. (laughs) Well, if you want to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And it's the same handle for all three. It is at 80s Montage Pod, and 80s is 80s. Derek, guess what? What? What's up? We're coming up on our season two finale. Yeah. Look, we can do this. We, we could literally do this indefinitely. <laughs> There's, we got no shortage of 80s movies. We're just going to keep plugging these out there. They're, yeah. I mean, I'm sure our listeners are just like so relieved to hear that. <laughs> no, you literally can't stop keep us. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. And we're ending this season on a real banger. I don't know. Is that, am I using that word correctly? I think that's okay. still, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That still works. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> so, all right. Let me, let me get ready for this one. We are doing, wait, do you know what we're nope. doing? Nope. No, I don't. You really don't. <laughs> I really don't. No, okay. I was so excited about this one that it has clouded <laughs> my vision. Can't, yeah. The Adventures? Oh, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in the something or other Something. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth oh, Dimension. Across the Eighth Dimension. Okay. All right. And what is so great about this one is that, uh, I mean, I okay, so full disclosure, I've never seen the movie. I know of the movie. Yeah. I know so many people who love this movie. And we are bringing back a great friend and a former guest. And we're super excited to be ending the season on this one. So thank you so much for hanging with us. And we will talk to you again in two weeks time. 